BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a lot going on in the world right now, but at a structural level, there's no more important bilateral link than the one between the United States and China. The two countries have a fraught official relationship. Our political systems are wildly different and our national histories are too. But the global economic system is as tightly integrated with American dollars and corporate know-how as it is with Chinese technical expertise and manufacturing. If COVID taught us nothing else, it should have been that the fates of the US and China are irreversibly linked. With strife around the world and important elections coming up in Taiwan and the U.S., President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping have a lot to talk about, and they'll do it this week in the Bay Area. We'll talk about it after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last 40 years, the U.S. and China have become economically integrated in ways that are astonishing. For evidence, take a look at the goods steaming into the Port of Oakland every day, or take Apple, our most valuable local company and the most valuable company in the world. Its model is to pair a tiny American workforce with massive amounts of contracted Chinese manufacturing labor. And yet, while some Americans hoped that integration into global capitalism would transform the Chinese political system into something resembling a liberal democracy, that did not happen. Instead, the two largest economies in the world are drifting ever further apart politically. That core disjuncture expressed in trade policy, human rights disputes, and diplomatic intrigues has led to rising tension for years, and it's in that context that President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping meet this week in San Francisco, where world leaders are gathered for the APEC summit. To talk about this important conversation, we are joined by an all-star panel. We've got Victor Xi, director of the 21st Century China Center at UCSD. Welcome, Victor. Thanks for having me. We have Colleen Cottle, deputy director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And we have Evan Osnos, staff writer for The New Yorker's Covered. Uh, China for The New Yorker for a long time and has an amazingly good new feature out called China's Age of Malaise. Welcome, Evan. Thanks very much. Glad to be with you. So, Evan, maybe we start with you. In a nutshell, how would you describe the China-U.S. political dynamic right now? It's utterly without trust. I would say that's the central crux of the problem in the sense that you have these Two countries that, as you've described, you know, spent decades, in a sense, building 
the <laughs> infrastructure of a relationship. And over time, <clears throat> the economic importance of that, the political importance of that, the security value, all of that, in a sense, was growing. But beneath it, what we now know is that the land was liquefying because mm. both on the Chinese side and on the U.S. side, you had all of these growing doubts that the other one, frankly, wanted uh, its counterpart to succeed. And I think that's really at the core of this meeting is this question of can these two sides uh, essentially reassure each other enough that they are looking for coexistence? Yeah. Colleen, you know, can you contextualize that for us in this particular summit, APEC, and what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to work? Yes, I think, um, I mean, that's a great uh, way that Evan started us off. I think trust is, is the key question. And really, even what, you know, I think it's important to think about what the motivating factors are for each side to even be having this meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both definitely see the value of uh, sending a signal both to domestic audiences and to a global audience that there is a need to stabilize a relationship uh, or at least give the perception of it and manage that uh, strategic communication at the highest levels and sustain that in the year ahead. I think for, for Biden, this is a chance to speak directly with Xi um, and not have you know some of his envoys uh, sort of indirectly uh, transiting some of the messages and then hearing directly from Xi as well. Mm. Um, so for him, it's about that high-level leader-to-leader communication, uh, as well as signaling to a domestic audience we're heading into a campaign season, uh, that he's taking a, a strong stance uh, vis-a-vis Beijing, but also working to be managing that relationship responsibly. Yeah. Uh, for Xi, I think it's a, a bit of a, um, a more of a domestic driver for, for this meeting. I think Xi is facing a lot of economic troubles at home, uh, some pretty bad FDI numbers that have come out. Uh, That's foreign really, direct investment for those who are thinking about foreign that. Foreign direct People, investment. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, that have come out that I, I think he needs to demonstrate to to uh, to these these investors that that China is a reliable place to do business, which is an open question whether he can do that. And part of this is about having this this meeting with Biden to show that that at least she is giving the appearance of trying to manage that that bilateral relationship. Victor Xi, you know, do you think actual issues need to move in this conversation and the you know waterfall of conversations with lower ranking officials going on around it do issues need to move for this kind of stabilization on both sides or is it more actually just kind of the the they need to establish a better and deeper uh, sense of communication about those issues which are more or less insoluble i think uh both are important uh especially for the U.S. when it comes to China, because uh, remember, there's only one key decision maker in China now, uh, who is Xi Jinping. So uh, if uh, people in the U.S. government would like to get a message and be sure that the message gets to Xi Jinping, the only way to do that is to meet with him face to face. I mean, otherwise, you just don't know the many layers of filter, what's going to happen to the message. Uh, but at the same time, of course, I think both sides are trying to get some real things done. Also, uh, for the U.S., I think what are very important is to establish channels of communication, uh, both among people in the government, but also especially in the military. Right. So uh, I think one thing the U.S. is really worried about is that with, um, you know, remember, China now has the largest navy in the Pacific. I mean, the U.S. still has the largest navy in the world. 
but the U.S. Navy is split between the Atlantic and the Pacific, and China now has more surface ships uh, permanently stationed in the Pacific than the U.S. does. So the two sides will run into each other from time to time. That's just inevitable. Um, and so the U.S. really would like some channel of communication. Uh, for China, you know, the U.S. still has a lot of sanctions and tariffs on Chinese companies and individuals. Uh, some of that, you know, obviously China would like to see removed. Yeah. Evan, you know, during the Trump administration, I'm sure everyone remembers that the president made it a point to trash talk China and have relations gotten better under Biden and maybe a more complicated spin on that question is, should they get better? Is that the, the right path? <clears throat> uh, they they haven't actually gotten better in a technical sense. If you look at the uh, uh, sort of um you know, a, a statement of the relevant areas of disagreement, they are fundamentally clashing, actually, one could argue, um, even more intensely. But I don't think that's for lack of an interest in personal diplomacy at the top of the Biden administration. In some ways, and I think Colleen and Victor both spoke to this in, in really important ways, there are these underlying issues that are really at the core of this. And, I, you know, it, it presents a puzzle, Alexis, because what you have is this case where Biden, as we know, is deeply involved in personal diplomacy. He imagines if you get in the room <laughs> that you can begin to sort of shape the contours of these really critical and, and complicated relationships. He's not wrong, but there are limits to it. And so, at the, you know, it is essential to have this kind of meeting uh, for the reasons Victor described, which is that in a, in a political system like China's, you cannot rely on anybody but the top person. To, uh, to, to really inject an idea into their system. And that means, for instance, this is the opportunity for the U.S. to say, we are seeking to maintain the status quo on, over Taiwan. We are uh, sending a very clear message that China should not interfere in the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. Like, let there be no mistake. These are core issues from the United States perspective. Um, but at the same time, there this is not a case in which these two guys are going to, even if they have some good moments of bonhomie, they may go for a walk in the woods. Uh, there may be some gestures of, of real um, personal uh, companionship, but the underlying structural issues here are profound. Also, you know, Evan, um, you mentioned in another interview that you did that, that she had met with Putin, like, I think you said 40 plus times, right? So, yeah. I mean, we're seeing one meeting here and there may be these moments, but there's other relationships that Xi Jinping has dedicated a lot more time, one-on-one -on -one time to. Yeah, I, he has been very clear about how he feels very at home in his relationship with Vladimir Putin. He calls him his best and closest friend. And I think, and I think, uh, it's important to add some context to that. On the one hand, that is partly uh, circumstantial. They're at a moment where they see themselves in a sense as this alternative set of governing concepts compared to the West. Um, so that puts them into league with one another. But I think Colleen and Victor would agree that there are also fissures within that dynamic. That mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways in which the Chinese um, don't trust the Russians. They frankly uh, are are quite resentful in some ways of how the Russians have treated them. So I don't like to overstate the importance of the Putin relationship because mm -hmm. I think you can you could read it to say, oh, well, then they are simply uh, an axis against which the United States is arranged. That's too simple. In fact, it is an opportunity for the U.S. 
to triangulate a bit and to try to figure out ways of pulling China closer on issues in which it is to our advantage and also exploiting the ways in which the Russians and the Chinese um, may not be permanent friends. Yeah. Colleen, uh, before we go to the break here, you know, we know that Biden and Xi Jinping also met last year in at G20, I think it was in Bali on the sidelines there. I mean, how did that go? Did that personal diplomacy yield something? No, I mean, I think it was, frankly, the, the outcome of that is, is probably the, the best we could expect for this. And that was this high level, you know, signifying that the two countries would look, you know, to maintain open lines of communication. Uh, there was kind of a gesture to areas they might cooperate on, like food security at the time um, as, as the Ukraine war was unfolding. Uh, climate is, is an area that there's always been sort of uh, a notion that there could be some cooperation. But in the end, you know, even that high level communication did not prove to be a durable commitment, as you saw the the. the she she's administration really shut down communications after the spy balloon incident earlier this mm. year. Um, and so I think, you know, the idea would be if there is this high level commitment to to continued um, communication coming out of this meeting, that it proves to be more durable um, such that, you know, the leaders would, would pick up the phone uh, should there be a crisis and that there would be continued to be high level, you know, uh, meetings that come out. I think Treasury Secretary uh, Yellen received an invite to re return to China uh, in the next year. And so really making sure that those meetings stay on track uh, and continue would be a, a key outcome for this year. We're talking about what President Joe Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping might be discussing during their upcoming meeting. Of course, it's going to happen during the APEC conference, which if you're in San Francisco, you've probably started to notice. We're joined by Colleen Cotto, who's the deputy director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council. Evan Osno, staff writer for The New Yorker, recommend uh, Evan's story, China's Age of Malaise in The New Yorker. And we're also joined by Victor Xi, director of the 21st Century China Center at UCSD. We'd love to hear from you. Have you worked in China? We know we have many Bay Area people who've gone back and forth. How has that experience changed or maybe it stayed the same? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. We're going to get more into China's, China's internal pressures when we get back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what might be on the table in the upcoming meeting between President Joe Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping. 
They're going to meet during the APEC conference in San Francisco. We're joined by Victor Shi, director of the 21st Century China Center, University of California, San Diego. Colleen Cottle, deputy director of the Global China Hub, with the Atlantic Council, and Evan Osnes, a staff writer for The New Yorker, of course. And we want to hear from you. If you've worked in China or you've traveled extensively uh, there, how has that experience changed or, you know, stayed the same? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email address is forum at kqed.org or Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Discord, we're KQED Forum. Uh, Victor Shi, I, I want you to talk us through some of the domestic concerns uh, for uh, China Xi Jinping. Yeah, so I think uh, foremost in Xi Jinping's mind today is probably the economy, uh, because uh, despite the lifting of the COVID lockdown in early 2023, the economy had a temporary recovery, but then now it's not doing especially uh, well, uh, both because uh, the real estate sector is not doing well and also export is weakening. I mean, one thing that's really interesting um, about the bilateral relationship is that the top uh, leadership in the U.S. and China may not trust each other, but uh, at the country level, across uh, these two countries, millions of consumers and companies mm -hmm. are making decisions to buy and sell goods to each other. So we still have uh, $600 billion worth of Chinese export directly to the United States, additional hundreds of billions of goods exported uh, in terms of parts to other countries like Vietnam and Mexico, which then are made into final goods, which then are sold to the United States. So there's still tremendous amount of trade. And then the U.S., of course, still exports a lot of grain and commodities and even airplanes uh, to China. Um, so trade is still extremely robust despite COVID, despite the tariffs, despite the horrendous politics uh, in the U.S. Uh, against China. Uh, and also in China, uh, the suspicious thinking against the United States, there is still an enormous amount of trade. And interestingly, by um, sort of uh, doubling down on supply side subsidies, which is what the Chinese government is doing, it is actually increasing China's dependence on the rest mm -hmm. of the world. So even though, you know, there was a New York Times article today about how Xi Jinping's, you know, very distrustful of the U.S. and wants to get into a military race with the U.S., all that could be true. But economically, China has no choice but to sell to countries around the world, especially the United States, which is still the largest single importer of Chinese goods. Um, Evan Osnos, in your story, you had an incredibly interesting tidbit about the kind of changing export patterns in China. And the, the core point was that Chinese exporters are now delivering more to the developing world than you know, their traditional partners like the U.S. and Japan uh, and, and Europe. And one of my questions about that was how much of those exports are these kind of intermediary parts and components that Victor was just talking about? And how much is that um, those exports are really like finished goods, you know, intended for Brazil and not eventually for the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good point, and I think an important point. So the the top line fact is that that China now exports more to, in a sense, developing countries, the global South, than it does to the U.S., Japan, Europe combined. But, and I think your point, Alexis, is is really 
critical. So a lot of that eventually gets uh, to the U.S. and to these larger um, final markets. The reason why both of those two facts are important is precisely as Victor was emphasizing. I think this is crucial. You know, China is still knitted in with the with the global economy, stitched in in vital ways. It can't uh, turn the switch and change overnight. Um, and at the same time, Xi Jinping has signaled in every conceivable way that he wants to build a future in which China is reliant more on those relationships with the developing world and ultimately on its own self-reliance um, than it is on its classic um, classic uh, trade partners, the US, Europe, because it's, he's decided that they are in a sense kind of unreliable. Um, mm -hmm. He's looked at the events over the last few years and said, I don't want to be uh, dependent on their political mood, on their attempts to uh, shape the trajectory of China. So, uh, you know, that is an important piece of the puzzle. If you looked at the at how they talk about their priorities, they are really thinking about trying to be, in a sense, a leader of um, a leader of the global south. They, hmm. That's that's how they want to be perceived. I mean, it's so interesting, Colleen, this is going to come to you. I mean, I think in the U.S. we've long perceived this conversation about, quote unquote, decoupling, you know, trying to decouple these economies, which are, you know, uh, so, so intertwined as being driven kind of by the U.S. side and our worries about being so dependent on supply chains that, you know, uh, run through or, just, you know, end in China. Um, what do you think is the possibility of actually decoupling in in any real way i mean is it really just talking about it because that satisfies kind of hardliners in both countries or is there something real to this de decoupling probably depends on who you're talking to and um which which industries um you're you're looking at but i mm -hmm. think you know decoupling kind of across the board across all industries is not um not really feasible and not not desirable, and you know, in the Biden administration, the the you know the key um, speakers about this, you know, Secretary Yellen and others have been clear that it is not um, not in the cards and not something they're looking to do, mm -hmm. uh, in part because of those really strong trade links that you you all have um, painted the picture of. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a you know there is a, a desire on on both sides, on the, the Chinese part as well as uh, on on Washington's part of of not um, being reliant on each other when it comes to critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, critical technologies um, that are in the defense space or just in the consumer technologies that may or may not have defense applications. You have new new fields coming into play with um, AI uh, that can have you know an array of, of uses that each side wants to be that global leader and being able to shape mm -hmm. the globe the you know the norms and the standards at which those those technologies are used. Uh, and I think that is where you'll see some some further drifting is 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 um, you know more controls on on the U.S. side. And you've had multiple tranches now of of export controls. This latest have covered um, semiconductors that could have AI applications. You have um, more you know um, the executive orders from over the summer each summer that are looking at uh, restricting uh, outbound investment uh, or controlling outbound investment, mm -hmm. uh, increasing notifications when it comes to things like quantum and AI. Uh, and so I do think that there is a real push now that the time horizon, I think, is another big question. This is not something that happens overnight, uh, particularly mm -hmm. in sectors with incredibly complex supply chains and where there are um, mineral deposits that are really only concentrated in a couple of places. So I think that is the big 
challenges for you know each each of these these countries to to really come up with those strategies that will work for them and and, and it's a long you know drawn out process. Yeah, I mean to your point, I was looking at you know how the how many U.S. Treasuries are held, uh, you know, in China, and it's it's interesting because it's still you know eight hundred billion dollars, which is a huge amount. It's our you know second largest uh, Treasuries holder, but it also is you know down forty percent from the peak, you know, in the aughts. So the change does happen, but it's like literally over these kind of you know uh, 10, 10, 20 year timescales. Um, Colleen, I know that in your background, you also were in the Central Intelligence Agency. And to me, the single most dangerous thing for the planet, just in general, would be a kind of hot war between China and the U.S. How do we even begin to evaluate that possibility that has such apocalyptic kind of consequences? Yeah, I think that's a that is a really important thing to keep uh, really not even in the back of our minds. But I think being able to. Um, and that's the importance of this of this meeting between these two leaders is is again signaling kind of strategic intent. Uh, I think she has been very clear about big picture strategic intent in terms of shaping the the global uh, you know the international system to China's advantage. You know, kind of writ large and in public statements. But I think being able to have kind of honest conversations at the leader leader level about about intent behind new policies that are rolled out. Um, and then in turn, each party takes these back and, and starts the process of planning. Um, we, we do scenario analysis a lot in, uh, in, in, in government and, and in, in intelligence. And so trying to think through, plan through different outcomes and how you prepare for those, uh, who are the key players that need to be involved. I think getting allies and partners together uh, on the, the planning stages as early as possible mm-hmm. is an incredibly important part of that. And the Biden administration uh, has really been taking pains, particularly when it when it comes to um, coordinating and thinking through economic policies. I think the G7 has really gotten a, a new a new life in a lot of ways, trying to think through how to how to um, address the, the the great economic challenge that <laughs> that China poses with some of its um, anti coercion work. And so, using that as a as a you know a platform for discussing mm-hmm. you know broadening that into more strategic um, discussions, yeah. I think is important as well. You know, uh, Victor, this one's going to come to you, but eventually uh, I want to hear your answer on this too, Evan, which is, you know, how much do the internal problems, particularly economic problems um, in China, like how do those change the geopolitics or foreign policy of of China, particularly as it relates to these kind of like military um, possibilities? Well, um, so I think one clear manifestation of some of the domestic issues manifesting in China's foreign policy is that, so we, we have to remember back in sort of uh, 2014, 2015, China launched the One Belt, One Road initiative mm-hmm. and began to invest, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in the global south. Uh, that turned out to be uh, an albatross on China's shoulder, uh, and it hadn't worked out very well because uh, a lot of these countries became heavily indebted. Now, with U.S. interest rates being so high, they don't have the ability to repay China. So you actually see, uh, and then at the same time, China's foreign exchange reserve, which was growing a lot in 2020 and 2021, has fallen by uh, a couple hundred billion dollars in the past uh, few months. And so um, things are not going very well in China's attempt to try to enlarge its economic influence around the world. 
it's very successful in Central Asia and in Russia, but outside of these regions, well, and also a couple of countries in Southeast Asia, but outside of these countries, uh, China's economic influence mm -hmm. is waning because it can no longer continue to channel hundreds of billions of dollars into countries around the world. Uh, that has led to some disappointment. Um, you know, uh, the other kind of internal challenge for China, I guess, the aging population, uh, which eventually is going to be quite a drag on the economy. But so far, you know, it's not such a huge problem. And then local government debt. So, I mean, this is why I think we do worry about these nightmarish scenario. But I think Xi Jinping has been in power for 10 years. And he has shown that he's actually a pretty careful decision maker. Like yeah. he, uh, on a lot of issues, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, things like war, I, I just don't believe he's going to make it decisions that are very, very rash. Um, and we, I just have not seen too much evidence of that. Yeah. Evan Osnes, do you want to talk about this? You, you really wrestle with this question in your New Yorker feature, too. Yeah, I, I think um, there is an... I think there is in the U.S. and elsewhere, sometimes we imagine that as China's economy slows down, uh, that he'll become more uh, uh, desperate to find ways of shoring up domestic support. And that maybe one of the ways of doing that is by rallying people around the flag, by pursuing some sort of national security adventure or foreign policy gambit, whether that's Taiwan or elsewhere. I, you know, you hear that a lot here in Washington, where I'm talking to you from. Um, interestingly, when you talk to real specialists on the history of China's military behavior, they say, let's, uh, le there's reasons to question that thesis. They're so, like, that's more of a U.S. thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, yeah, exactly. We'll leave that to another show. But it is, you know, I think there is a, it, it sort of feels to us like a satisfying scenario to imagine, okay, well, that's how China's going to deal with this problem. Um, if you look in 1989, however, for instance, around the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, you might have thought, well, that's a perfect opportunity for China to divert attention from home by doing something abroad. Actually, what they did is Deng Xiaoping at the time said, I want, as he said to, uh, he said, it, he said, I want calm, calm and more calm, talking about his foreign policy relationships. So the question before us, and, you know, Colleen will have a sense of this, too, I think is, you know, how much will Xi Jinping um be, uh, will he seek to stabilize the international environment for China versus would he mm. want to pursue this kind of diversionary action? My instinct, I think, probably like Victor is to say, I my hunch is he's got a, enough on his plate at home that going into a war over Taiwan that he's not even sure he can win at this point is not consistent with the risk profile that we've seen from him so far. Colleen, what do you think? Yeah, I would tend to agree with that as well. I think um having multiple crises you know that this is not something that the the government has contended with and so having multiple crises at, at the same time would strain resources and um be be a lot to juggle and so i think having yeah having that calm external environment i think the the the, the pains that 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 China has made in terms of outreach to the global South, like we've talked about, we, we haven't mentioned the, the BRICS expansion, whatever you may think of the BRICS, but you know, you had those, those um, six new me members, you had 22 others that formally applied, but Be Beijing and maybe the broader BRICS grouping is gaining traction with mm -hmm. the, uh, with the global South and, and the, the, you know, the larger developing world. And so part of, I think China's effort will be really just courting, courting those countries and trying to, 
you know, use its um, discourse power overseas through its state controlled media and elsewhere to be able to paint itself, whatever's happening domestically in a positive light overseas and really make sure that that external environment is, is favorable for, you know, not causing not causing extra friction and, and problems for yeah. China as it, as it would contend with what our domestic challenges are at play. Just wanted to uh, note for folks, too, that that, you know, kind of economic grouping of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, recently added, I think it was just the, over the summer um, reading here, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates, sort of like a competing uh, power block there. Um, you know, um, Evan, I, I was wondering if you could, if we could return to the balloon incident. Um, it's something that, you know, at the time, it was hard to tell, like, is this just like an absurd U.S. media creation? Or was it actually a serious fracture or, or part of what was happening in the U.S.-China uh, relationship? Well, I think the effect was that it was clearly a rupture. I mean, it had this extraordinary ability to to undo uh, these fragile preparations that had been laid in Bali uh, at the uh, at the G7. I, I think what's fascinating about that is that um, it was a reminder of how brittle this relationship is right now, that all it took was a was a balloon uh, to to throw us into really un uh, sort mm -hmm. of uncertain um, uh, turbulence. Is that the right metaphor? Yeah, here? Sure. I think. Yeah, I, I just. I mean, what, one thing that's useful to note too is that um, it was also a little insight for Americans and, and American analysts. I think to try to make sense of. How much does Xi Jinping have total command or total information awareness over his own system? I mean, I think the casual assumption is, oh, this is Xi Jinping, you know, sending a balloon across, probably. And I, I, I think Victor and uh, and Colleen would have thoughts on this. More likely, uh, this is a case of a system that is operating in its many um, pieces and elements. So hard to know how much he really knew, how much he was caught uh, flat-footed. Yeah. We're talking about what's at stake in the Wednesday meeting between President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping at the Apex APEC conference here in San Francisco, talking Chinese domestic policy as well as uh, the U.S.-China uh, relationship. We're joined by Evan Osno, staff writer for The New Yorker, also joined by Colleen Cottle, deputy director with the Global China Hub with the Atlantic Council, and Victor Xi, director of the 21st Century China Center at UCSD. He's the author of Coalitions of the Week, Elite politics in China, from Mao's stratagem to the rise of Xi. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. We'll get to more calls and comments when we come back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the big conversation on Wednesday between President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping at the APEC conference here in San Francisco. Joined by Colleen Cottle, Deputy Director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council, Evan Osno, staff writer for The New Yorker. Most recent feature on China is China's Age of Malays. He's also the author of Age uh, of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. And we're also joined by Victor Xi, Director of the 21st Century China Center at UCSD. We, listener wants to know, and I, you know, this is obviously a, a huge part of the question, and Victor, we'll, we'll go to you here. What do the guests think will happen with Taiwan, and what is the importance of China building land masses in the South China Sea? What do nations in the region want the U.S. to do vis-a-vis China? Uh, yeah, so what what's going to happen in Taiwan? I, you know, I think, um, depending on the Taiwan is going to have its own election uh, in January uh, and most likely, well, I, I don't, I'm not a Taiwan expert, but I think uh, a DPP candidate could well win the election. <clears throat> um, in which case we, we will see another round of this kind of China demonstrating its military might in order to send a signal to the new uh, administration on Taiwan that uh, China w- will not tolerate any move toward independence um, but but I think a lot of that is priced into the policymakers' expectations uh, in the U.S. and also in Taiwan. So hopefully nothing too surprising will will happen on that front. Uh, in terms of China continuing to expand, you know, various uh, land features in South China Sea, um, you know, obviously that's not desirable for countries in Southeast Asia. But at the same time, I I think they don't believe much can be done about it. Uh, besides hmm. the U.S. continuing, U.S. and other allied countries continuing uh, freedom of navigation operations in the area, uh, because in order to really stop China from doing that, uh, you would have to use kinetic force, which is, you know, obviously nobody wants to use. And by the way, I would add that, of course, you know, people, uh, policymakers in the U.S. are very alarmed by very aggressive behavior by the Chinese Navy and by the Chinese Air Force, but as aggressive, you know, sailing kind of 100 feet, you know, close to uh, U.S. naval vessels, et cetera, as aggressive as some of the behavior is, uh, China has not gone kinetic, you know, not even toward the Philippines. You know, they use water cannon, which, you know, uh, it's it's not nice, uh, but at the same time, it's not like firing a torpedo uh, at a ship. So, so I think there is still... Um, you know, a level of care uh, at at the top level in China to not uh, want any particular incident to completely uh, get out of control. Uh, at least that would be my interpretation. You know, so sometimes I think about how thoroughly China crushed the dissidents of Hong Kong and that it just has completely uh, left American media. Like, Evan, I, don't know, so, I mean, obviously the situa- situation in Taiwan is very different, but what does that Hong Kong situation tell us about how the rest of the world might react, if anything? Well, I think that, um, 
I think there's a, a feeling that certainly in Taiwan that it's no longer abstract what it would be like uh, if they tried to pursue, you know, the one country, two systems model. I think it was really, um, you know, just thinking strategically, Beijing set itself way back in trying to um, build a trusting future with Taiwan by handling Hong Kong the way it did. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, you also have to look at the way that the world responded to Xinjiang and the treatment of Uyghurs there who have been subjected to large-scale human rights abuses. And I think, you know, that did actually occupy more of the diplomatic uh, global conversation than I think China expected. Hmm. And so in some ways, you know, I think to your point, Alexis, you know, it may be that Hong Kong, yeah, people have sort of come to now imagine that Hong Kong has been thoroughly absorbed by China. Um, and yet at the same time, it has... There, there is a way in which the events of the last decade have made China contend with the reality that it could, in fact, uh, injure its relationships that it once took for granted. It used to believe, basically, that it was so economically promising and important to the United States and to Europe that they would never turn their back or never significantly uh, change their economic relationships. They needed to sell cars there. They needed to, to uh, have that market. And I think the reality is that the rest of the world is um, more responsive to these kinds of issues than I think China assumed a decade ago. Yeah. Um, Colleen, I guess this, this goes to you. One listener asks, as hideous as Donald Trump's rhetoric was, does he get some credit for identifying China as a threat economically and strategically to the U.S.? Did his commentary crystallize any thinking about how the U.S. should view China? Yeah, I think that that's an excellent question. And I think it's a good um, point. And I think the fact that, you know, the really the trajectory has remained the same um, across the Biden administration from what started under the Trump administration, I think, speaks speaks volumes. And I think, you know, there was a lot of a lot of dialogue, a lot of efforts during the Obama administration um, on, on multiple fronts, uh, the Treasury led dialogue, you had the commerce led dialogues to try to uh identify areas for cooperation between the two countries, deconflict, uh, sort of get China to shift off of certain investment policies. And it was it was clear that those those policies had very little, you know, maybe tiny tactical shifts, but for the most part didn't have a lot of impact. And hmm. I think Trump in a lot of ways rightly, rightly called that that out as as being an inadequate response and really you know, the, the tariffs really got China's attention hmm. uh, and you saw a, a big scramble on their part to try to look at ways to, to roll back those tariffs off. And in, and in some ways, you had some interesting new areas of cooperation. You know, it was in response to those tariffs, I think, that drove China to do more on fentanyl, for example, hmm. uh, where they really did move to schedule um, whole categories of, of fentanyl drugs, something that you wouldn't have imagined previously. There was even some cooperation in terms of um you know, uh, law enforcement and intelligence action on, on Chinese um, chemical Chinese firms that were making fentanyl precursors. All, all of this to try to you know get China to roll back some of those those tariffs that that didn't end up working. And I think you saw then a nice pretext down the road later for China to stop some of that um, cooperation on, on fentanyl, for example. But I do think that um, you know it was uh, it was a a big strategic shift that really had you know had the entire Chinese government apparatus on its back foot that that um, opened the door to uh, trying different mm -hmm. approaches. I think 
the, the, you know, some of the, the sharp rhetoric uh, probably, you know, um, wasn't as ideal. And the fact that there wasn't a big push on the allies and partners um, piece of things with the Trump administration, I think that's been an area that the Biden administration has really picked up and has made that kind of refined that policy in ways that have been you know, more effective uh, on, on some of the, the, the goals in terms of limiting yeah. the flow of advanced technology to China, for example, on semiconductors. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I do think that this has been, a, a, you know, a, a long now a, a permanent really shift in how how the U.S. is thinking about that economic and strategic relationship. You know, just for folks who haven't been paying attention, then we're going to go to uh, Heather and Bellinas. You know, with fentanyl and also with methamphetamine production methods now, they're purely chemically synthesized. And a lot of, as uh, Colleen was saying, the chemical precursors are coming in bulk from China through northern Mexico and then into the U.S. And so this just for for awareness of why, you know, China would be... uh, a, a party to talks about, you know, fentanyl problems in the U.S. That's why. Um, Heather in Bellinas, welcome. Hello, thank you. And thank you to the panelists. I wanted to talk about my experience in China in the last 10 years under Xi Jinping as someone who's been working there since 1982. I run a nonprofit that um, was banned from China recently. It was documented in the Wall Street Journal over the Uyghur genocide situation. Um, I made a documentary film called Complist that looks at the poisoning of workers on assembly lines at Foxconn. And I could never make a film there today. By the time we finished filming there and went into post-production in the U.S., everything had been shut down in terms of NGOs operating, trying to assist workers in the plants, um, in the areas around the uh, major electronics factories in southeastern China. Uh, the press freedoms become even more limited with the passing of new laws that make journalists personally liable um, for articles that criticize corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the situation there has become almost impossible. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the NGOs in Hong Kong with the Oh, Heather, I think we are losing you. I, I, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I remember sending, when I was an, an editor, sending a reporter uh, to China in 2014, and it's still being, like, dicey, but but possible. Evan Osnes, um and again, Heather and Blinus, thank you so much for that. You you also discussed this um, in, in your work, just that there used to be a greater sense of personal freedom. You know, I think you lived in China from things 2005 to 2013 or, or something along those lines. Um, That's right. How, how much have you seen the change? Uh, that Heather's describing. Yeah, it's profound, actually. I mean, I think um, for anybody that has worked on China on the ground, um, just the ability to go and see organizations and write about their work and um, to sort of anticipate that they will speak freely or comfortably. Look, there has always been, anybody who's been working on China, everybody always knows that there are things that people want to say or don't say, and those bounds are shifting constantly. Um, This is by no means uh, a a free country and has not been one uh, ever. But uh, that is also, uh, it's important to recognize when things change. And the reality is that the capacity to do rigorous academic research or journalism um, or other types of important analysis has been dramatically constrained on the ground in China. And as a result, I think that it is uh, 
feeding some of this sense of uncertainty in the United States. It's much mm. easier in a way to kind of be scared of a place that we don't know as much about. So, you know, to the degree that there is still room for improvement in that regard, I think that getting reporters back into China and getting, you know, more Chinese reporters, uh, let them come and report on us in the United States. I think that is a net positive. Mm. Um, and uh, I hope to see more of that. One of the things you're likely to see out of this summit is the idea of a uh, is more people to people contact that includes students, that includes academics, scholars, everything, that kind of stuff. As the U.S. ambassador Nick Burns said to me for this article, he said there is no world in which us unilaterally pulling back from sending students and scholars and so on to China. That doesn't help us. And uh, I think he's he's right about that. You know, one listener writes in with uh, an experience here. You know, my son recently traveled to China for a fellowship exchange. He was advised to turn off his U.S. phone and not to log into Wi-Fi whenever possible. He was also told not to post on social media during this trip. There was a real concern about not doing anything that might irritate or draw the attention of Chinese authorities. We are a well-traveled family, and this was our first encounter where surveillance felt like it could uh, impact our security you know, Victor Xi, I mean, this is this has been one of the responses uh, during Xi Jinping's, um, uh, you know, ascension and, and run um, that we've seen just ever more uh, surveillance and also the development of technologies and deployment of technologies that actually allow that surveillance to occur as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, as Evan was saying, uh, definitely, you know, uh, Xi Jinping himself would like the party to control uh, almost every aspect of society. He has made that a reality, you know, through a combination of physical coercion, uh, shutting down NGOs, uh, and so on and so forth, as well as uh, electronic surveillance. One of the very unfortunate byproducts of that, uh, in addition to COVID, of course, is that the number of American students studying in China has plummeted by over 90%. Uh, there used to be 20 to 30,000. So, you know, obviously the peak was in the early 2000s when mm -hmm. we were there, when Evan and I were there, uh, and, and there were a lot of American students. But even in 2019, there were 20 to 30,000. Today, it is, th uh, I think, four to 500 American students mm -hmm. in China mm -hmm. studying. So that's a dramatic decline. At the same time, you know, the number of Chinese students Coming to the U.S. Is, uh, has declined a little bit, but more or less, uh, at least in the same magnitude, you know, several hundred thousand students. Um, so we need to get more American students going to China. Um, you know, China is it is odd, you know. So in terms of street crime, China obviously is much, much safer than the United States because of the surveillance and so on and so forth. But at the same time, there is this real worry that if you bring your phone, uh, you're on Twitter or X. Uh, and then you follow some of these Tibetans or Uyghur activists, that will uh, be considered an infringement of the national security law in China mm. and get someone in trouble. These are real worries. Um, so I think China has to find a way to uh, protect at least certainly students and you know hopefully academics also who visit China uh, so that they don't get in trouble for some some of the nominal infringement of some of their uh, very stringent laws on cybersecurity and national security uh, in order to encourage more students from the U.S., from Europe, from other countries to visit China. Yeah. Um, Colleen, I wanted to touch uh, with you on one other you know important local issue here, which is, you know, the U.S., 
has started to roll out a bunch of different rules restricting, you know, advanced semiconductor technology uh, for for Chinese companies. Oh, what have you heard about uh, effects that that has had? Um, you know, in terms of on the Chinese, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think uh, you know it certainly has uh, you know hasn't shifted their their ambitions and their intent at all. Uh, if anything, probably is more motivating. Um, I think it was interesting to note you had you know the the announcement during um, Secretary Raimondo's visit in in China um, later this this summer that you know Huawei had released its $900 plus newest phone with a you know fully domestic made chip mm. um, that was clearly you know designed to show these these controls won't won't stop us altogether I think there is you know some certainly some delayed now timelines that are happening as a result of these con- controls um, and they, I think an important aspect was that these controls that the U.S. put in place were coordinated and you had similar uh, aligned efforts in in Japan and Korea as well as the Netherlands. Um, so really, it is you know preventing the the Chinese from getting some of the the equipment needed to make these semiconductors in addition to access to the the, the chips themselves. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that given how strong the the intent is is there, that there's you know there will be continued to you know slower timelines. But I do think that mm-hmm. that there is going to continue huge sums of resources, and even with the yeah. slung economy. Um, that the focus on on these technologies is just first and foremost with that that self sufficiency goals that that Victor and Evan have raised. I think well you'll still see this full 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 court press in this area. Last thing and real quick, Evan, I mean your your feature made me think that Chinese entrepreneurship may be a little bit in trouble because of all of the this kind of age of malaise that you described. Do you think that's true? I do actually. I mean, I just think that um, the what we know about the culture of entrepreneurship is that people watch what happens to the generation before them, and uh, in in many ways, you know, there are young people all over China who were inspired by seeing Jack Ma build Alibaba, and you know, here he was an English teacher who kind of assembled this extraordinary company, built one of the biggest companies, uh, most valuable companies, I should say, in the world, uh, and then he was, as everybody knows, I think. Um, uh, they humbled. clipped his wings. Yes, humbled, and uh, was you know, driven out of the leadership, and was real, and was and was detained. And so yeah. people watch, and those yeah. lessons matter. We've been talking about what's at stake for Wednesday's meeting between President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping. We've been joined by Evan Osno, staff writer for The New Yorker, Victor Xi, director of the 21st Century China Center at UCSD, and Colleen Cottle, deputy director with Global China Hub with the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much to all three of you, and I hope this was a good uh, primer for everyone thinking through uh, these relationships. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Good luck with that APEC traffic. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.